Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today we are in week four of our Christmas series. And this is a series that we've titled Good News of Great Joy. And specifically this morning's message is good news of great joy for both victims and perpetrators for both victims and perpetrators. And in this series, this Christmas series, as we've been going through this good news of great joy, what we've been doing is we've been tracing this this theme through the opening lines, the opening 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. And big picture, those opening 17 lines, those are the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus. That's where a bunch of names are listed. This guy beget this guy beget this guy. And because of that, there are parts that we almost always, like historically, most people, the modern readers just skip over that part of the, of the text. We, we skip straight to the story of, in Matthew, an angel visiting Joseph, and in Luke, of an angel visiting Mary. And we, we tend, typically we skip right there when we're telling the Christmas story, but to do so is to miss out on a beautiful thing that is contained in these 17 verses. And it's this beautiful whisper of what is to come, a little foreshadow of the good news of great joy that Jesus brings. And so for our part, we've been going through this family tree and we're not, we haven't traced all 42 generations. We've zeroed in on five generations that are listed in those 42. And it's the five women that are named in Jesus' genealogy, in Jesus' family tree. But you might think of them as the mothers of Jesus generations going back. And one of the things that we've noticed, the reason that we're focusing in on those five is because it's highly unusual for them to be included for a number of reasons. And here's, here's the three reasons we looked at on week one, just briefly. One is that genealogies back, going back first century and even in the ancient world as well, uh, genealogies served as one's resume, which means when you told your family tree, which is actually something we might do today, People focused on the ancestors that did something uh, notable, something commendable, something noteworthy. Like those are the stories you might highlight and say, hey, I descended from this person. And the stories that are maybe um, embarrassing or maybe about somebody who did something that was not that um, noteworthy, those are the stories that were tended to be skipped over or omitted if they're embarrassing. So that's number one, genealogy serves one's resume. Secondly, genealogies were selective. They weren't comprehensive, okay? Matthew is under no obligation to tell every single detail of Jesus' genealogy. Like historically, the way these went is you would, you would trace, as long as you trace the family line in a legitimate way and you show the legitimacy of the family line, it was very common to skip a few generations here or there. So he's not under any obligation to tell every story. And lastly, genealogies in the patriarchal world of the first century trace the lineage through the males. Okay, so a more common genealogy is what the, like the one that we find in, in the book of Luke that traces gene, Jesus' genealogy going all the way from Adam to Joseph. And that one includes 70 generations, also not comprehensive. 
but 70 generations and every single one of them is men. There's not a woman listed there. So here's, here's why this is so important. Because Matthew has swerved way out of his lane in order to include these five stories. And he didn't have to, he was under no obligation to, but he did so under the, the leading of the Holy Spirit because these stories tell us something. These stories are whispers about what, what Jesus was going to do and the good news that he was bringing. And so we're gonna lean into that today. And um, we're gonna start just in verse one. We're gonna read the first few verses of Matthew and then we'll get into today's story. So Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We looked at that in week one. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Look, that was week two. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. That's a story that Janet took us through just beautifully last Sunday. Uh, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And that's where we'll stop for today. We won't continue reading all 42 generations, but we're gonna stop there. That's our, our story for today is the wife of Uriah. Now, we actually know her name. Uh, we know her name as Bathsheba from the story of David's life and found in 2 Samuel. Specifically today, we're gonna be in chapter 11. Uh, and Matthew's readers the first century people he was writing to, which was predominantly a, a, a Jewish crowd, they knew her name as well because they knew the Hebrew scriptures. They were an oral culture that, that passed story from generation to generation. So they knew her name, but in this case, Matthew doesn't use her name. He calls her the wife of Uriah, which is actually in keeping with big picture. That's the way that Samuel tells her story as well, continually identifies her as the wife of Uriah, identifying her by her first marriage. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at that story and then we're gonna circle back to the reason that Matthew included this story in Jesus' family tree. And we're gonna look at why it is that he identified her the way that he did. So let's turn to chapter 11. And before we actually begin reading the text, let me give you a little bit of background of what's been happening in First and Second Samuel up to this point that um, is going to be relevant for today's story. So, first of all, um, setting for Second Samuel eleven, David is currently enjoying the golden years of his reign. He's the king over a united Israel, and he is loved by all the people. If you want to read one chapter in particular that's helpful for understanding where David is in this moment in chapter 11, I think 2 Samuel 5 is really helpful. Um, here's what, so here's what that means that he's in his golden years. Because we know David's story in 1 Samuel, we know that David gets uh, anointed to be the future king of Israel, but it's a long time between him being anointed to be king and actually being appointed king. There's this big gap. We call it his fugitive years. And during that fugitive years, life was really rough. He was on the run from King Saul. King Saul was the, the current king of Israel and he was uh, very jealous, madly jealous of David. And so he was pursuing David around the country, trying to kill him, actually using Israel's army for his personal vendetta against David. 
And so because no one else was fighting Israel's battle, David was on the run and then using his little ragtag band of misfits to fight Israel's battles. So he's acting like the king long before he's appointed king. So he's made it through that. And uh, he's been made king over, over just over his tribe at the age of 30. So he's of the 12 tribes, David's from the tribe of Judah. At the age of 30, he gets appointed king of Judah. And then about seven and a half years later, he gets appointed king over all 12 tribes. The tribes actually come to him and say, you've been acting as our king all along. We want you to actually be our king. This is after King Saul had died. And so they say, we want you to be our king. So he becomes king at age 38 over United Tribes of Israel. Um, Once he was established as king, he chose Jerusalem to be the capital city. Okay, previous to that, when he was just ruling over Judah, he had used Hebron as the capital. But uh, upon being made king over all Israel, he chooses Jerusalem as the capital city. And uh, something really cool happens in 2 Samuel 5. That's why I put that chapter there. Because a foreign king, a king from another nation, actually in honor to David and in making a, uh, an alliance with David, he sends uh, skilled workers brick masons, stone masons, carpenters, and he sends all of the materials. This is King Hiram of Tyre. He sends all of the building materials to build a palace for David in Jerusalem, okay? A palace built up on the hill. If you think anybody like Lord of the Rings, couple of us, think about that city of Gondor, how the, the king's palace was built on the top of the city and looking down over the whole city historical ruins of Jerusalem show us that that's how David's temple was. It was maybe not that steep of a, of a grade, but it was, at the, it was at the top of the city, overlooking the city. King Hiram of Tyre, he sent cedars of Lebanon and all the workers, the skilled workers, stonemasons, carpenters, to build a palace for David. So that's all happened. Uh, and then secondly, 2 Samuel 10 tells us the account of David defeating both the Ammonites and the Syrians. This was the last real threat to Israel's sovereignty. So the job of a king was to be, uh, one, the leader of the people internally, but also to be commander in chief and to fight the battles for Israel. And David, this this is kind of like the golden moment in Israel's history where they actually have peace on every side. Chapter 10, right before we get here, David defeats the Ammonites and the Syrians. The Philistines, traditional enemies of Israel, have already been defeated. At this time in Israel's history, the Egyptians were immersed in internal turmoil and they weren't weren't focused on expansion. They were just trying to deal with their own problems. Uh, Babylon and Assyria have not yet kind of risen as world powers. So they're not like involved in this area of the world. And um, essentially what this means is that Israel is within their region, they are the world power. David is enjoying the at last peace on every side. Moving forward, they will have a standing army, but essentially it will be used to just like put down um, uprisings and to, and to keep the peace. So that's where we are. What that brings us to is, is today's story, which means that as we pick up the story, David is probably in his like late 50s. At the, at the earliest, he's in his late 50s. Because he became king at 38 and there's been time for him to establish peace on every side. And there's also been time for the foreign king, king uh, the king of Tyre, to build a palace for him, okay? We'll pick up in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, verse one. Now in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, you know, as kings do in the spring, 
Some of you, you'd change your wardrobe in the fall. That's, that's when the kings go out to war. David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Okay? And we know from chapter 11 or from chapter 10 that the Ammonites have already, big picture, have been defeated. This is essentially like a mopping up campaign. And Samuel reports that this time, as the army goes out, David stays home. Okay? There's a little, do you catch the little kind of sense of foreboding? The little, hmm, there's like a deep undertone there, like this maybe doesn't go well. But David stayed home. This is at best, this is a departure for David. He's usually with his men. He's out leading the military. He was always their commander in chief, but he was always their in-person commander in chief. This time he sends Joab. Joab is one of his most trusted men, his commander. He sends Joab in his place. And here's what this means. This means that all of David's troops, and especially one group in particular, they're out fighting a war on David's behalf while he's staying at home. And that one group that is not there that's out fighting a war on his behalf, it's a group called the, uh, the Mighty Men. David's Mighty Men. You can read about them in, I think, 2 Samuel 23, lists some of their exploits. But these are this, this, like, this uh, band of brothers, for lack of a better word. They're like David's, uh, his special regiment of seasoned warriors that have been his personal bodyguard throughout his years, even going all the way back to the fugitive years when he was running from Saul. That's when many of these, th these men were drawn to him and became his, his team. And together they've grown into this like elite military unit. And, and so David's mighty men that he's fought with for decades are out fighting on his behalf. These are guys that have seen him pass some incredible tests of his integrity. If you read about the stories in 1 Samuel, when, when David's been anointed king, but he's not yet been appointed king, and there's times where he has the opportunity to, to take the kingship into his own hand by taking Saul's life, that happens a couple times. And at that time, the, the mighty men, the 30, they were saying things like, God has done this. God, take his life, take the, take the throne. God's given him into your hand. And David, both times he said, no, this, this isn't the Lord's will. This isn't God's way. This may be the way that it happens out there, but this isn't how it happens in God's kingdom. So I will wait for him to establish me. And so these 30 men have seen him pass some incredible tests of his integrity. But now they're away fighting and David's at home in his cedar palace that King Hiram built for him. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. David's bored, he's restless. You know, I, every now and then I hear an interview with like a, a professional sports player after they retire and the first year after their retirement is just brutal because they really want to be out. If NFL, they want to be out there on the field. And, it's like, and, and they don't know what to do with themselves, right? Sometimes they get into trouble. David's bored and restless. And so after his nap one day, he's out surveying the city from the roof of his palace. He's just looking over what has happened. And he notices this beautiful woman bathing. By the way, um, David, he doesn't have, right in this moment, he doesn't have the companionship of his band of brothers, his mighty men, but he doesn't lack for companionship. At this point, we know from 
2 Samuel chapter 3 that he already has at least seven wives. Six of them have given him sons. So he's got children. He's got wives. He's got female companionship, probably more than the seven that we know of. And so he's not lacking for companionship. But here he is out on his roof and he sees a woman. Here's, here's what this tells us. David at this point in his life on this issue of his own sexuality and his relationships, he's not taking his cues from God. He's taking his cues from the surrounding culture or cultures. He's actually acting like a pagan king. This is what pagan kings did. They had many wives, many sons. Some of those were political alliances, but he's acting like a foreign king. And, and this is a departure for David. This is, a, this is an area of his character that's unredeemed. When he, when he was faced with the challenge of taking the throne by taking the previous king's life, that's what the other cultures did. He says, no, it's not supposed to be that way in, with God's people. But in the area of his own sexuality, he's taking his cues from foreign kings. Remember, this is helpful to remember. This is because this story we're getting into, it's bleak. Historical narrative in scripture, when scripture's telling us these stories, they're telling us what did happen, not what should happen, okay? Theologians would say, historical narrative, like what we're reading today, this is not prescriptive, meaning this is not, this scripture isn't saying, this is what you should do, follow David's lead, you have verses. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's just saying, this is what David did. Let's see how that played out in his life. Okay, so David notices a beautiful woman, which I think at this moment, this is, this is about 3,000 years ago. This is around 1,000 BC. This is for David the equivalent of Hebrew pornography, right? There's no online, but there's a naked woman. And this is the moment of choice for David. This is the moment where he can either walk away and give this young woman her privacy, or he can click. So this is like a pop-up window, right? It's like a pop-up window. And there's this moment of warning. What are you going to do? And he has a choice. This is how all temptation works. Here's a little aside. This is how temptation works. A critical moment, pivotal moment of temptation. There's a pivotal moment in all temptation, the moment when it's easiest to turn away and will require the least amount of willpower or self-control to do the right thing. Okay? You know this if you're thoughtful at all about your own patterns, about your weaknesses, about the things that you're tempted by, about behaviors that are at best self-destructive and at worst completely sinful, right? So whether it's like David, whether it's related to sex and pornography, whether it's related to things like food or alcohol, whether it's related to compulsive spending and shopping, whether it's related to, to anger or violence, maybe it's related to lying or stealing. There's a moment, there's a moment in all temptation when you're bumping up against a guardrail and your personal history tells you that if you go past this, if you take the next step, you're going to end up doing the thing you don't want to do, Right? And, and, and history tells us that. And then on top of that, there's the Holy Spirit that will give us a little nudge. And it's often very subtle. 
and can be ignored, can be pressed past. It's a little... And if we press past that moment, this is the Holy Spirit grace to recognize our patterns and to choose something different by the power of God. For the person who struggles with pornography, for example, it's gonna be easier to limit your access to being alone with your computer or with a phone. It's gonna be easier, it's gonna require less self-control to do the right thing by not giving yourself the opportunity than it is to have the opportunity to be alone and to be faced with a pop-up window, right? Or, or think about maybe, maybe you struggle with food or alcohol or something like this with our appetites. It's much easier to never buy the thing and bring it into your home that you struggle with than it is to have it and choose whether or not you're, how you're going to steward that, right? If you bake the pan of brownies, it's gonna require a whole lot more self-control to not eat them all than it is to simply not bake them, right? This is, this, this is how temptation works. So that's the moment David's in. David's out for a walk on his roof. He's in this moment. This is the guardrail. What do I do? He hasn't sinned yet. He's just stumbled across a beautiful naked woman. And the question is, what's he gonna do? Verse three, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What did he do? He clicked. Because there is absolutely no good reason, no justifiable reason for David to know anything more about this woman than he already knows. There's no reason for him to know who she is, what her name is. But he does, and this is what he finds out. So he's told, who is this woman? She's told her name is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam, who is one of his 30 mighty men. She's the daughter of one of his best friends who has been with him, who has fought with him for decades. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, another of his 30 mighty men. Okay? Which also, it doesn't say in this text, but it also we find out this in 2 Samuel 23, I think makes her the granddaughter of Ahithophel, his most trusted advisor. By the way, when you read, if you read the whole story of David's life in 2 Samuel, you'll see his best friend, his closest advisor, Ahithophel, turn on him at a moment of crisis. And the seeds for that happen right here in what David does to Ahithophel's granddaughter. The knowledge right here, what David finds out when he says, who is she? And that he gets told, everything should be a flashing red sign, a stop sign. For David, even as a polygamous king, even if he's taking more women to be his wife, this one, this, there's like flashing red lights. Stop, right? But having started down this road, David lacks the willpower and the desire to stop. And he has the positional power to keep going. Here's what happens, verse four. So David sent messengers and took her. Messengers, plural. She came to him and he lay with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. Okay, what happens in this moment? On David's side, what happens? This is unbridled lust. Okay, make no mistake. This is not love. There's nothing, there's nothing this is not loving. He didn't know her name until five minutes ago, okay? 
This is lust. In fact, he's probably prepared having slept with her to never see her again. Because that's what shame does, right? When we reach out and take something we're not supposed to have, then, then what comes after that is shame. He's prepared to never see her again, except for she reaches out with this new development. As for David, or as for Bathsheba, her story pauses here because David's going to go into damage control and try and cover his tracks. But first, before we watch what David does to cover his tracks, I want you to notice something. We just found out something very substantial about Bathsheba and her character. We're told that she's bathing herself in obedience to the law of Moses regarding ritual purification. Leviticus 15 has this whole chapter talking about ritual purification for God's people and how they were supposed to go through this process in order to, um, in order to teach them about the need to be pure. And part of that was this cycle that she's in that following, I think seven days following her monthly period, she was supposed to go through the ceremonial washing. That's what she's doing on the roof, okay? That's where the bathing spot was. So that means she's not sunbathing, she's not flaunting her body. She's not trying to be seductive. She's not trying to attract anyone's attention. She's obeying scripture. This is what she's doing in this moment. She's obeying scripture and she's doing it when she's home alone. Her husband's away at war. Her father's away at war. And if character is what people are in the dark, if character is what people are when no one else is watching, her character is that she's somebody who aspires to obey God's law and is actually doing that. But now she's been victimized by King David, who sends multiple servants, maybe guards, to take her from her home and to bring her inside the walls of his palace. And we all know the stories, right? This is is 3,000 years this has been happening. We find out about women finding themselves inside the house or hotel room or mansion of a powerful, wealthy man, and it doesn't go well for them, right? She's brought there. Not only is there a vast power differential at play here, he's, this is the king of the nation. There's also a, an age differential. He's in his 50s. She's the daughter of one of his most trusted men, right? So that's what happens. Some time passes, enough time for Bathsheba to discover that she's now pregnant with what could only be David's child, because her husband's been away this whole time. And so she lets David know. What I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna summarize the, ter- the narrative for a, f- a few moments. This is what David does to cover his tracks. So uh, let me just summarize that and then we'll, we'll go somewhere happier. <laughs> Damage control, covering David's tracks. David comes up with a plan. His first plan is plan A. David asks for Uriah to be sent to him from the war front. This is different. He basically treats Uriah, who is a seasoned soldier, uh, uh, this is like his elite fighting force, asks him to, to, to take the role of a messenger. You wouldn't normally do this. But nevertheless, he asks for Uriah to be sent home. Uriah brings a report. He says, Uriah, tell me what's happening. How is the fighting going? How are the troops? And then at the end of that, he gets to the real reason he's there. And he says, why don't you, um, why don't you go home and spend the night at home before you head back to the front? And David's hope an expectation is that Uriah is going to go enjoy the comforts of home, have a nice meal, spend the night with his wife, and then go back to the front, and then David's tracks will be covered because the baby can be Uriah's, right? That's what he's trying to do. 
The text even sends us that David sends a gift after him. He says, go home. And then he sends messengers with a gift for this lovely couple. What do you think's in the gift basket? We don't know. We can guess. Candle, scented candle, (laughs) bubble bath, bottle of wine, nice cheese, chocolates, oysters, chocolate covered oysters. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. Different culture. But here's the thing. Uriah never gets the gift basket because he's too honorable to go enjoy the comforts of home and marriage while his comrades are at war. And so he sleeps at the king's gate that night. Instead of going home to his own, the comforts of his own home, he sleeps at the king's gate, which puts David into plan B when he hears about it. Plan B, David tells Uriah to stay one more night before heading back to the front and invites him to dinner that night in the palace. So Uriah comes to dinner with David and David is very liberal with the wine and actually gets Uriah drunk, thinking that if his, if his inhibitions are lowered, maybe he'll go home and spend the night at, with his wife like he probably wants to do, right? So David does that. And uh, what we're told is that even drunk Uriah is more honorable than devious David because he still refuses to go down to his wife. He still spends the night at the king's gate. So David hears this and sees this and knows that he still hasn't covered his tracks. So he goes to plan C, which is he sends Uriah back to the front, this time carrying his own death warrant. So he writes a note to Joab, rolls it up in a scroll, puts the king's signet on it, seals it so it can't be opened by anyone but Joab. And it says, would you take this note to Joab? And when Joab opens it and reads it, it says, place Uriah at the place of the most violent fighting and then pull back from him so that he's slain. Joab reluctantly obeys. Joab's also one of the mighty men. These, this is one of his comrades that he's been fighting with for David for decades. And now he's told to, to kill him, have him killed. Joab is an obedient soldier, so he follows the command, but he doesn't like it. He reluctantly obeys, and not only is Uriah killed, but several other troops that are fighting with Uriah are killed unnecessarily. They basically do, they, they observe some really bad military strategy in order that these lives are sacrificed, okay? Understand, this is murder. This is murder that David has initiated to cover his own tracks, that means that David at this point has, has now broken three commandments. He's coveted what was not his. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. So Joab sends a frustrated message back to David saying, um, well, what you wanted is done. And David at this point, his, he's, his heart is so hardened and he's so calloused that his response to hearing that one of his mighty men has been slain along with others, his response is, well, Tell Joab you win some and you lose some. Just finish the battle. This is is not David's best. This is dark. Meanwhile, what about Bathsheba? Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her into his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Don't lose that. David managed to cover his tracks. 
In fact, David might even come out of this looking good because look at this generous king who is taking in the pregnant widow of one of his fallen men. What a generous king. He's providing for her in her pregnancy and her widowhood. He comes out looking good from a human level, but God sees. If you want to read the rest of the story, it's in 2 Samuel 12. I would encourage you to do so. It's a powerful story because God, God's, at this point, David's not listening to the nudge of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going, <clears throat> and David can't hear it. He's, become, he's hardened his heart. And so God sends a prophet named Nathan. Nathan exposes his sin. And at that moment, David confesses and there's a whole repentance. But the consequences that he's put in motion are, are, are not undone. So there's, there's forgiveness from God, but the consequences are not reversed. The child that's born to him in Bathsheba dies. Later, she has another child and David names that boy Solomon, who is in our lineage that we just read. But the consequences David put in motion are, are severe. And I mean, I'll just say this because we're not gonna focus on David's consequences. We're gonna focus on what the, why this story is here and what it tells us both for Bathsheba's sake and for David's. But understand this, sin is very serious. And, and, and what David puts in motion, he never recovers from. In fact, the way that he leads his family and the way he leads the nation moving forward because of his own guilt and shame over this moment, is he's paralyzed. He never fathers well again, and he never rules well again. This is his undoing. That brings us back to the context of our primary text, the family tree of Jesus. And here's the question. Okay, so good news of great joy. Whole series, this is good news of great joy. Christmas, how is this good news of great joy? Why did Matthew swerve way out of his lane to reference Bathsheba and David's story in Jesus' resume? And why did God, here's a, a, maybe a, a, well, it is a more important question. Why did God sovereignly choose to advance Jesus' family line? using this relationship. Because remember, so, so, so God has made promises to David. I think in 2 Samuel 5, you find the story of David saying, hey, I've got this wonderful cedar palace and you're still, you still have a tent. How about if I build a temple for you? And God says, you're not gonna build a house for me. I'm gonna build a house for you. I'm gonna build a house that will last forever. One of your descendants will have a throne that will last forever. That was the messianic promise of Jesus, that he was going to bring the Messiah through David's line. But God doesn't have to do it through Bathsheba and Solomon. Thanks to David's polygamy, God's got a lot of options, <laughs> right? Long before Bathsheba enters the picture and Solomon, David's already got multiple wives and multiple sons. God chose, he chose to bring Jesus through that relationship. He didn't swerve around it. He moved through it. And then when the story gets told, it's told in a way that's unflinching. The reason that I believe that, that Matthew doesn't name Bathsheba and actually names that, that her primary relationship, her first relationship was that she was the wife of Uriah, is he wants to call attention to this story. 
This story contains a whisper of good news that the gospel brings that can bring joy to both victims and perpetrators. I think for both David and Bathsheba, this story recalls what has to be some of the darkest days of their lives for both of them. For Bathsheba, the day when her life and her marriage was ravaged by a lust-filled and powerful king, her life was just completely turned upside down. For David, it's the day when he abandoned his deepest calling and used his power, his position, and his influence for self-gratification, bringing devastation and violence, not only into these immediate lives, but for generations. If you read the rest of 2 Samuel, everything this gets put in motion, it is bleak. This is the darkest moment of David's life. You know, David, his, his revelation when King Hiram built him a, a, a temple or a, built him a palace, says, 2 Samuel 5, 12 says, David then perceived that the Lord had made him king over Israel and that the Lord had exalted him as king for the sake of the people, Israel. David's influence, his power, his authority was always supposed to be a stewardship for the sake of others. And whenever David remembered that and lived from there and led from there, he was a blessing. But in this moment, his unredeemed sexuality comes into play and he has the power to reach out and take. So what is the good news for victims and perpetrators? God's deliberate inclusion of this story in Jesus' lineage and in Matthew's introduction of Jesus is a foreshadow of the gospel. And here it is. Here's the good news. God can bring redemption to and through even the worst of human sinfulness and violence. God doesn't, he can handle it. He can handle our very worst. In fact, he moves towards it. Not to affirm it, but to redeem it. God can forgive my deepest shame. He can forgive your deepest shame. God can heal my deepest pain. He can heal your deepest pain. Most of us can identify at some point in our lives with being both victims and perpetrators. There's things we've experienced at others' hands that were unjust, unfair, where we've been used by another, abused by another. Most of us have also been on the perpetrating side of that as well. And this story says that God can bring healing to the shame and he can bring forgiveness as well. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back. In a moment, they're gonna lead us in a song that was actually written by David. It was actually written by David in response to this moment. And after the prophet Nathan came and, and uh, confronted him about his sinfulness and he repented, he wrote a worship song. And the worship team is gonna lead us in that. So we're gonna have a chance to respond with, with David's words and, and pray. But with, before we do that, here's what I just wanna do. I wanna invite you to just close your eyes. And we're gonna take the story that happened 3,000 years ago and bring it into today, into this Christmas. Again, this is the Christmas story. Believe it or not, this is the Christmas story. With all eyes closed, I just want to ask you to pay attention to what 
stories, what memories might have bubbled up for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's reminding you of something that happened to you or something you did that maybe you've buried. Maybe like David, you, you've, you've spent so much time covering things that your heart has become hardened and callous. One of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is to give us hearts of flesh where we have hearts of stone. One of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is to free us from our idolatry. What David did, that was self-idolatry. He was putting himself first. If this story elicits for you memories of violence or injustice that you've suffered, if you identify with Bathsheba and what she experienced, here's what this story means to you. The fact that God came through this story and even announced this story, here's what it means. It means that God sees you and he says to you today, I can bring healing to you and I can even bring good out of what was evil. It doesn't mean that what happened wasn't evil, it was. And we have a God so powerful and so loving that he can even bring good out of that. This story tells you that what happened to you won't go unaddressed. Maybe it feels like somebody got away with something. And just like it says that God saw it and he was displeased, God cares about what happened to you. And it won't go unaddressed. Here's what that means. And here's the gospel. One of two things will happen. Either one day your perpetrator, the person who victimized you is gonna stand before God and give an account of what they did. Or, they will ask forgiveness of Jesus and Jesus will take the punishment for what they did. What happened to you was God cares about it so much that he entered into this world and died to take the punishment for what happened to you. That's how seriously God sees this. This is how much he cares. This is, this is Christmas. God entering into our world, not just to be born, but to offer up his life. If you identify with Bathsheba, can you just sit in that and allow God to bring some healing, allow to, him to, to give you the freedom of forgiveness. If you're treasuring or, 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 or holding on to bitterness, God can set you free from that today by saying, I will deal with what happened to you. Give it to me. If this story elicits shame in you for some ways that you've gratified your desires at the expense of someone else or for unredeemed parts of your character, you identify with David and you, you, you get the whole thing with a cover-up. You know what it's like to, to experience shame and then try and hide it from others. And what you've hidden and tried to keep hidden has cost you and it's cost the people around you. 
cost you relationships. It's cost you intimacy. It's the source of your anger. God says to you today, I can forgive and I can restore you. I can transform you and make you willing and able to do what is right and good. David wrote a lot of Psalms. I'm gonna read an excerpt from Psalm 32 and then from Psalm 51. But listen to the words of David in Psalm 32. He said, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand was, of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. But finally, I confessed all my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then in Psalm 51, this is the one that was specifically written in the wake of David's repentance. Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. But now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. This is God's word. Would you stand with me if you're able, if you're here in the room? The worship team is going to lead us in that song. And we get to sing along with David. And whether you're inviting God's washing, taking away the, 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 the pain, the grief, the loss, the shame, I just invite you to do business with God. David, what, what he's saying throughout this is, is, I got real with you, God. I stopped trying to hide and I confessed and that's where the healing began. So let, let this song be a prayer if you want to just listen and let it be your prayer if you want to sing out. But this is our chance to respond. And 
soft close today because we're going to make some time for prayer. Uh, the most important thing you can do in responding to this Christmas message has to do with you and God. And quite often there's a, a human element where God continues the healing or the forgiveness, the freedom that he wants to do as we pray with another. And so I just want to invite you, if you are, if, if God's stirring something in you, to, um, to just come up front today and uh, make some space. We'll, uh, different prayer team people might come up and just lay their hand on you and offer to pray with you. 
And uh, I would encourage you to share if you're, if you're needing to share about um, something, a memory that's been triggered, and you feel safe to share that this morning, I would encourage you to do that. I'll be with you in just a second. And, um, and invite you to come up and do that. We also have some words for prayer we're going to put up on screen. In addition to what our, our team sent this morning, which again, remember the message? They sent that God wanted to bring both freedom and joy. Those two things go together. Freedom and joy. Those go together. And so the other things that our prayer team sensed is some physical healing, issues of sinus headache or congestion, numb feet, nerve damage, uh, high blood pressure, nagging lower back pain. Um, additionally, these, these words, these are some specific words. Step into the freedom that God has for you. Leave the door closed. Closed. The door is God closed. Leave them closed. And Jesus is your anchor. So if you have prayer needs this morning, I just want to invite you to come, come up front and just pray. And we have a prayer ministry team that will come and just they'll lay hand on your shoulder and pray with you. Apart from that, we're going to be dismissed. Remember, next week is our Christmas uh, children's program. There's invitations. You can use these to invite somebody to both Christmas uh, Eve services on uh, Sunday morning, Christmas Eve morning, and also to that Christmas Eve or that Christmas play. Okay? We'll make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.